This is Carpe Consensus. Join hosts Ben Schiller, Danny Nelson, and Cam Thompson as they seize the world of crypto. Hello and welcome to Carpe Consensus. This is a podcast from the Coindesk Network and I am Ben Schiller. I am the features editor here at Coindesk and joining me today is a rather under the weather Danny Nelson. How are you doing Danny? Are you okay? Doing terribly. How are you? Good. Good to hear. Good to hear. And Cam Thompson, she's a Web3 reporter here at Coindesk. Hey Cam. Hey, how's it going? Good. So Danny, uh, do you want to just explain to our dear listeners uh, what the show's about? Absolutely. So Carpe Consensus is Coindesk's opportunity to bring you, the listeners, into our consensus festival world. And this week's show in particular is especially exciting because we're going to talk about the SEC and different regulators rising actions against the crypto space. And that's going to be a huge theme that we're going to get into in Austin as well. All right. So for today's show, we're going to start with Inside the Desk, where we're going to take a look at the mega scoop of a day that Nick Day, our managing editor for Global Policy Regulation, scooped in a day. Crazy, crazy scoops we got going on with Kraken. So we're going to look into what's been going on. Then we're going to go into an interview with Austin Federa. He is Solana's head of strategy and communications, going to talk about what's been going on with Solana as of late. Then we're going to do Danny's Dungeon and Cam's Corner. So keep on listening because I can't spoil it. All right, let's get to it. Okay, joining us now is a very special person. That is uh, Nick Day. He is the Managing Editor for Regulation here at Coindesk. He is someone with a lot of experience in covering this industry. And last week, he had a couple of really big scoops related to the SEC settlement with Kraken over its staking service, which uh, was a big deal in itself. It also could be a big deal for uh, staking in general and for the industry in general. So uh, thanks very much for joining us, Nick. Hey, thanks for having me. So just walk us through uh, what that settlement says and what the impact might be for the industry. Yeah, so Kraken and the SEC settled charges that said basically that Kraken's offering of a staking as a service program constituted an illegal and unregistered offering of securities. And, you know, it's really important to note that it's not really staking itself that the SEC is pointing to right here. It's Kraken's product specifically, which offered returns of, I think, over 20%. And, you know, according to the complaint filed in court, the returns that Kraken was offering were actually not the same as the actual protocol rewards. They were, you know, whatever Kraken came up with on its own. So, you know, we saw a lot of uh, speculation, let's say last week, about the SEC cracking down on staking completely and entirely. So far, at least, that does not appear to be what happened. So Kraken and the SEC settled these charges. Kraken's paying or has paid a $30 million fine with penalties and shut down its U.S. staking programs. Non-U.S. customers are unaffected. And Kraken is unstaking all the cryptocurrencies except for uh, Ether, I believe. Ether is holding, it's waiting out until the Shanghai upgrade is completed. And then it plans to unstake that as well and send customers their cryptos back. So you had this news ahead of other outlets, and it was a big scoop. Do you want to talk about how that came about and uh, how you work on sources to be prepared for these moments? Sure. I mean, you know, part of it is just talking to people, making sure that, you know, even if it's not for a story, just making sure I know what's going on, what's happening in the world. So a lot of it was definitely talking to people. What really spurred this one was I was digging into a story around a tweet by Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong. 
Uh, he said he had heard rumors of the SEC cracking down on staking. So you know, it was in the pursuit of trying to figure out what exactly he meant by that, that I came across this information that Kraken would be settling these charges by shutting down staking programs. I got the tip on, I believe this story came out Thursday, so I got it on that morning and spent a couple hours trying to you know, verify, reaching out to various other people who may know and be familiar with this situation and just seeing what I could get. And ultimately, we had enough you know, information. We were confident enough that we published. And a little less than an hour later, the SEC officially announced the settlement, confirming the reporting and providing a bit further detail on things like the $30 million fine. Now, Nick, I was talking to you when this scoop was developing, and we were, we, we were very confident in, in your sourcing. But you know, whenever you don't have an on-the-record statement from a company, there's always a chance that something might go wrong. And you pledged to uh, eat a bag of raw broccoli if things didn't go the way that we hoped they would or that we thought they would. And they did go the way that we thought they would. I have to ask, were you going to buy it from Giant or from Trader Joe's or from Acme? Like, where were you going to source the sock you were going to have to eat, basically, if this story had gone wrong? I mean, as someone who lives in North Jersey, um, I probably have to find like a shop right or something. Have you, have you ever had to eat that bag of broccoli before, so to speak? Like, have you ever had that flub? For the record, you didn't have that flub, and this was a huge story, and we did scoop it. But take me to one of those times where maybe things didn't go so well. Yeah, I mean, you know, I've been reporting on crypto for a while, have occasionally had issues that I've had to correct. I think probably the most publicly embarrassing one for me was there's a bank called Standard Bank, and there's a different bank called Standard Chartered Bank. Standard Chartered is huge. It's massive. You know, it's really big, especially in the part of India I'm from. So I'm very familiar with that one. Standard Bank, uh, not Standard Charter, Standard Bank received, uh, I forget what it was, it's like a bit license or permission to operate in New York, something like that. And I saw that and I was like, oh, wow, that is huge. And uh, so we published something and shortly afterward, I got a couple of messages from people saying, hey, uh, you meant to say Standard Bank, right? Not Standard Chartered. And I'm like, oh, I did in fact misread that. All right, champ. Well, it's not all misses like Standard Bank. So it's worth noting that last week you had two scoops actually on that Thursday. One was Kraken and the next was Paxos. Tell us a little bit about Paxos' situation with uh, regulators in the US. Yeah. So um, also on Thursday and shortly after we published the Kraken news, I reported that the New York Department of Financial Services, the state level bank regulator, was investigating Paxos. And at the time, we didn't have a clear idea of what the scope of this investigation was. But Paxos, of course, is known for issuing the Paxos dollar or the Pax dollar, USDP, but also the Binance USD stablecoin. And it seemed likely at the time that at least one of these stablecoins and most likely the Binance branded one might be tied to the investigation somehow. And uh, over the weekend, we learned that the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission is planning to sue Paxos over the Binance USD stablecoin. And moreover, this morning, the New York Department of Financial Services announced that it had actually asked Paxos to stop issuing Binance USD because of concerns about that particular relationship with Binance. Feels pretty significant, right? This is the first time we're seeing regulators uh, specifically talk about a stablecoin that is backed by assets rather than being algorithmic. So Nick, just wanted to ask you about the kind of broader regulatory environment now for crypto, because uh, this SEC announcement with Kraken uh, is just one of a number of things that seem to be going on. You know, there's talk of clamping down on stable coins, of crypto companies being unable to work with banking companies. Are we seeing a broad-based regulatory and, you know, government assault on this industry? And is that something we should be 
thinking about in, in, in kind of that broader term. I think we're seeing the hangover from 2022. The last bull market, crypto got really big. People were doing all sorts of things. And then, you know, when things started collapsing after Terra and Luna, after Three Arrows Capital, after all the lenders, after FTX, you know, regulators are now in a position where, frankly, they've been embarrassed by a lot of what happened, right? If you're a regulator and your job is to protect U.S. consumers, and there's this entire industry and asset class that's just been, you know, bopping around doing whatever, and all of a sudden, $2 trillion is off the market cap. People are following bankruptcy hearings to see if they're going to get any of their life savings back. Regulators are going to feel pressed to do something. Now, you know, we've heard rumors and we're seeing, I think, evidence that regulators are now acting. The SEC, of course, this Kraken settlement. New York Department of Financial Services just ordered Paxos to stop issuing a Binance-branded stablecoin. I imagine we're going to see, you know, more and more signs of regulators taking action. I guess the question is, what does this signify? And we've seen some people say that this is a conspiracy theory, that this is an administrative effort to kill all crypto. We're seeing regulators say that they just want to protect people. The truth is probably somewhere, you know, I want to say it's leaning more on the regulatory side, but closer to the middle for sure. Um, I don't think this is, you know, a conspiracy, but I do think a lot of regulators are saying, okay, well, you know, if you're a bank regulator and you're a, you know, custodian regulator and you're a state level regulator, we should see where we can coordinate and what we can figure out to address these concerns. And the industry's got this history of, you know, trying to ask for forgiveness rather than permission. And clearly that's, you know, not going to work out as well as it might have in the past. So by conspiracy, you mean a coordinated push between, you know, regulators, legislators, and the government? Are you saying there's no coordination between those elements? Oh, there's definitely coordination. I think I question the extent to which there is. You know, remember a year ago, just under a year ago, the Biden administration, for example, came out with a surprisingly positive executive order for the crypto industry. People were praising it. And while I think the industry has long had concerns about how SEC Chair Gary Gensler might approach the sector, a lot of those concerns at, to the administration at large were kind of more focused on, okay, well, you know, here's what he said and here's what the different departments might do. Now we're kind of seeing a lot more people, you know, be concerned that the administration has changed its mind, that it just wants to tamp down on this. They're pointing to things like a White House statement from a couple of weeks ago, which called on Congress to enact safeguards. To some extent, I think the regulators have, if not soured on crypto, at least kind of, they're now focusing a lot more on, again, this consumer protection, on this potential risk aspect of it all. I guess the question is, what is the end goal? Is the end goal to kill all crypto? Is the end goal to make it safer? Is the end goal to just kind of, you know, put it into this box where people can play around with it, but it doesn't have any real financial implications? And I don't have a firm answer to that, but it does feel more like it's to make this sector safer for people rather than to kill it entirely outright. Back to when you were looking at Brian Armstrong's tweet and concerns around staking regulation in general, what do you think are the next steps in terms of the SEC cracking down on staking for other exchanges? I know that Kraken was a unique case where it was kind of bending those rules and offering its own rewards rather than the actual pool itself. But you know, what do you think is next in terms of regulation for staking? Nick, before you go, I'm going to just jump in here. I have uh, some, some fresher intel even than from what Nick had seen in his reporting. Over the weekend, I was at the Penn Blockchain Conference and the SEC Commissioner Hester Peirce, who is a noted uh, supporter of crypto and of, of crypto's right, or in her opinion, its right to experiment before SEC and re regulators crack down on it. 
she was saying that she saw uh, the SEC's action against Kraken as arbitrary, and there wasn't really much reason that they went after Kraken first. So from that, I at least take away that this is not going to be the end of the SEC's attacks against staking as a service operators. And uh, Nick, I'm wondering uh, if you feel any differently. Yeah, I mean, you know, to the question, it does feel like we're going to see more staking as a service operators, you know, get into the crosshairs. And I, I think earlier I mentioned that it doesn't look like staking entirely is being dismantled by the SEC, but it is worth noting that I think most of the people, at least in the US who are staking, stake through one of these service providers. Uh, there's not a, you know, not a lot of people who stake on their own. So if staking service providers are indeed in the crosshairs, and it sure looks like they are, then the question naturally becomes, what's the next model that the SEC is going to look at? Kraken does have its own unique kind of model because of the returns that it uh, promised, but does that mean staking operators who are only giving back whatever the actual protocol generates are safe? And I don't have an answer to that at this point. Okay, Nick Day, uh, it's always a pleasure. Thanks so much for coming on. And uh, you can follow Nick both obviously on Twitter, uh, but also he has a newsletter called The State of Crypto or State of Crypto, which is a good uh, wrap up of the regulatory and legislative scene in DC in particular. So uh, subscribe to that and you'll get all the wisdom that Nick has to offer, which is considerable. Thanks, Nick, for coming on. Thanks for having me. Joining us this week is uh, Austin Federa. He is the head of strategy at the Solana Foundation. Uh, hi, Austin. Hey, thanks for having me. He, he's also the host of the Validated uh, podcast. So check that out as well after checking us out. So Austin, uh, we want to get an update on what's going on at the foundation, including the fallout from the FTX uh, scandal. So that was obviously a big deal. And Solana was very much uh, kind of aligned and associated with uh, SBF and, and everything that happened with him. Uh, so what is the, uh, the fallout from FTX for Solana? Yeah, you know, the, uh, the few days after that news originally broke and sort of the first half of November, I think there were a lot of folks who were wondering if this was existential for the Solana network. And uh, you saw a lot of panic and a lot of fear. And I think what we've seen in the, in the you know, two months plus since then is that the network is stronger than it was before. The community has kind of come together uh, to cut out the parts that had FTX involved and to sort of rebuild the foundation of DeFi on the network. And, you know, Sam and the entire FTX organization were or early supporters and backers of the network. They built the first central limit order book built on chain, which was Serum. But there were many networks that they were supporting and heavily investing in. Uh, Solana was actually it might have been their most profitable investment, but it was by no means their largest holding or investment that the organization had made. But, you know, the, the early work of SBF did put the Solana network on the map when they decided it was somewhere they could build a highly performant DeFi exchange on. That code is actually still around and has been forked by the community and redeployed as something called OpenBook, which is still a central limit order book built on chain. So uh, it's been really great to see the community kind of come together and, and start moving past this. So we did hear some reports at the time uh, following FTX that some developers who were using Solana had exited and gone to other chains or other projects. Could you give us an update on that? I mean, is the development community down from uh, where it was last year? You know, if you look at the Electric Capital Report, which is sort of the gold standard for developer reports across networks, and it's kind of the gold standard because every layer one and layer two complains that it undercounts them. So if everyone's complaining, it generally is a pretty good report. Um, it shows that Solana has the fastest growing developer ecosystem and community. That reporting actually runs through December, so it covers, you know, about six or seven weeks after the FTX news broke. 
you've seen a few NFT projects, uh, you know, look at expanding or migrating to other blockchains, but you know, NFT projects, as great as they are, they're not really making use of the unique characteristics of a blockchain. You know, anyone who's decided to go cross-chain or somewhere else, best of luck to them. But what we're seeing is that the developers who have chosen to build on Solana, they have a reason to build here. It's the performance of the network. It's the scalability. It's not having to deal with sharding. The developers who are excited about what Solana has to offer continue to be excited about what Solana has to offer. So, I mean, I would expect you to say that everything's fine with Solana uh, following SPF, but presumably there are some lessons to be learned here for crypto in general and for Solana in particular about getting to in bed with a particular individual and allowing that individual to control or push the narrative of a particular project. Do you feel any kind of any need to apologize or any need to learn any lessons from um, kind of strong association that you had with the single uh, malevolent creature? I mean, I kind of disagree with a bit of that premise, I would say, that the, the nature of a blockchain is open and permissionless. And if we want an open and permissionless and decentralized ecosystem, you can't have a litmus test on who's allowed to buy tokens, who's allowed to launch projects on a network. That kind of goes against the, the spirit of blockchain that we've all kind of been building and supporting over the last, you know, 10 years or so as an industry. It's very easy to say in retrospect, you know, oh, this was a bad actor on the network, which I, I think is, is the assumption that um, most of us have and definitely uh, folks of the foundation have at this point. But, you know, you have to remember that these, these types of individuals are able to get into all sorts of different ecosystems and that these was, this was not on the radar of regulators. This was not someone that most people thought was a bad actor in the ecosystem and somehow it was just overlooked. This was sort of, you know, the darling of DC, for lack of a better term, um, in terms of the engagements there. So it's a tricky thing to look in hindsight. You got to remember that, you know, SBF started his involvement with the Solana community about five months after Mainnet launched in summer of 2020. And that was not a time when many people were building on blockchain or investing in blockchain technology. And so, you know, the original vision that that team had was that they were going to build stuff on Solana that was going to disrupt their centralized exchange that they could build a, a decentralized exchange that was going to be so performant it could rival the capital efficiency and performance of a centralized exchange. As they grew and expanded, you know, their, their competitive advantage changed from what they could build to what they could lobby or the way that they could start using and pushing regulation that was actually pretty anti-blockchain and anti-DeFi to cement their market position. You know, this is sort of the same, you know, Netflix in the early days was a huge proponent of net neutrality until they got rich enough, they could just pay the bills to Comcast. And they said, oh, we don't really care about net neutrality anymore, because we've got another way to accomplish this. I think it's probably the best way to look at the involvement of FTX and the Solana ecosystem. They were, they were involved for a year, and they, they came in with a lot of big promises and never really delivered on what that vision was going to be. And that is unfortunate for the whole ecosystem. And obviously, the collapse of that exchange has had widespread repercussions across the network and across the ecosystem that, you know, are still impacting blockchains to this day. Yeah. And uh, one of those that we've seen was just an overall drop in crypto activity across all chains, but especially for Solana-based protocols. More recently, we saw a bit of a resurgence when there was a token issued uh, called Bonk, which basically was Solana's first big meme coin. Uh, and it drove a lot of new wallets into the ecosystem. It drove a lot of activity. And also helped reset the narrative from the rocky fall of FTX to maybe a reset. Those volumes have kind of slivered off in the weeks since Bonk dropped. So when you think about the strategy of the network, a network can't survive on meme coins alone. How is the Solana Foundation 
in investing itself into bringing up more activity on the network? Yeah, you know, the meme coins uh, are inherently volatile because memes are inherently volatile. And anything based on social cachet will obviously go up and down with people's changing whims and, and desires. You know, the, the work that the foundation is engaged in is really about like infrastructure for the network. And so whether that infrastructure are new primitives and DeFi and helping sort of rebuild, I mean, DeFi across all blockchains right now is is dying. And it's, that doesn't mean it has to continue dying. But what we're seeing is across all networks, TVL is down, uh, activity is down. People don't feel confident putting funds into DeFi. This is not a Solana-specific thing. You're seeing this happen on pretty much every network today. With uh, that idea of DeFi dying, I mean, you're saying that DeFi is dying and all chains are down at a time when we're seeing centralized crypto taking huge broadsides from the federal government uh, really in the last few weeks. And uh, crypto proponents are saying, well, we can you know, move to DeFi, but DeFi is, is on the outs. So what's the future for crypto? Yeah, I mean, look, I think what we're seeing right now is that first round of DeFi is is faltering because what it offered was something that was very appealing in a market where you had very low interest rates. And as that capital landscape changes, you're seeing this across centralized finance as well. The kinds of financial service products people are interested in are, is, is changing. DeFi needs to adapt to that and build different kinds of products on chain that offer really compelling solutions to folks in a changing macroeconomic landscape. I think what we're starting to see is some of that activity and research is picking up on networks like Solana. But the stuff the foundation is really invested in is making sure that Solana is the best place to build for the long term. These are not the kind of investments that are short term, you know, really newsy investments that people love to write about. These are, these are real underlying pieces of technology that increase the stability and resiliency of the network against a black swan event where there's a hack or there's a bug in core code. Uh, so there's a lot of those kind of foundational investments that are going to allow developers to build new types of things or build much more easily than they could before. And that's kind of what the, the point of the foundation is. It's not to support one category of product or one type of new thing that's getting launched on the network. It really is about making it easier for developers to build whatever they want to build. And that's really the, the core thesis is that no one at the foundation knows what is going to be the ultimate solution to anything. Our job is just to make it easier for smart developers around the world to build whatever they want to build on Solana. Okay. Well, with the Ethereum Foundation, with the, the, the Ethereum world, one of the big advantages that uh, all these different blockchains have is the EVM and the compatibility. You can move programs between blockchains and start them up pretty easily. That's not an advantage or that's not a feature that is possible, at least at this point, on Solana. And in a way, that's been to Solana's benefit because it's a very distinct ecosystem. But it also means that when there's a lot of energy behind Layer 2s and Ethereum-connected uh, chains and projects, you're not seeing any of that spillover into Solana. I'm thinking like with Arbitrum and Optimism, those have benefits of the narrative and also infrastructurally when people are interested in Ethereum more generally. But you don't get that with Solana. So at this point in the cycle, is Solana's advantage actually dragging on it? You know, running a... So as you mentioned, Solana's built on a different underlying architecture. It's not built on the Ethereum virtual machine. It's built on something called the C-level runtime. And C-level combines uh, consensus and block production and execution into one layer. So we don't have a separate VM state 
separate from the consensus layer where you do an Ethereum. There's massive advantages to that. The network is significantly faster than EVM because it doesn't come with a bunch of the legacy of EVM code, which is never designed to be high performance, right? If you run Geth locally, you're still getting nowhere near the throughput you get on Solana mainnet beta. The advantage of that is the folks who decide to build on Solana, they have a reason to build on Solana. So I think what in a, in a uptick market is a huge advantage, right? Having folks build on you for a reason can be a barrier to entry in a market that's down like what we're currently in. And so, you know, to make that easier, the foundation has, has given out a bunch of grants for development activity in terms of tooling. But, you know, right now, I don't think, uh, I don't think Solana would be where it was if it was an EVM chain. It just, it's, it would never would have attracted the developers it needed in the early days to get a distinct advantage over other chains. So Austin, I wanted to ask you a longer term question. Uh, you know, obviously there are a lot of competing uh, smart contract platforms, whether it's Algorand or Polkadot or Ethereum or, or yourselves. What is your theory about how many smart contract platforms are going to be going forward? I mean, is there going to be a hollowing out? Is there going to be a race to the bottom? Is there going to be one chain to rule them all? I mean, what is the ecosystem going to look like in five years time, do you think? And will there be specialization between the different platforms, say a finance smart contract chain or an NFT smart contract chain? How do you see that playing out? So my general theory here is that sharding creates a worse user experience and a worse development experience. And so the most successful chains are going to be the one that can resort to L2 solutions or sharding solutions last. And this is kind of the thesis of Solana is to make that base layer one in a global state machine as fast as humanly possible, and then look at sort of off-chain or parallel chain solutions to scaling as opposed to starting that out from the beginning. I think what we've seen is that like something like Polkadot has a very elegant architecture with parachains but that that has been a much harder place for people to build than they expected to. I think if you look at the success of a chain like Cosmos, Cosmos's success comes from these application-specific sidechains. It's not that people are actually using Cosmos in a single global state monolithic architecture. They're doing other things with it. And the Ethereum transition is, is very interesting. The end state of Ethereum post-merge, post-surge, post-purge is... There's a lot of rhyming steps left to do uh, before we get to that end state. Looks a lot more like Cosmos than it does like Ethereum of today. That's a, that's a pretty radical pivot in terms of the fundamental architecture of what that network has to offer. And it's going to be very interesting to see how developers and users respond to that. I mean, what we see today is that there's no L2 that has any significant traction at this point. Despite having disruptively lower fees, because they're no longer operating in that one global state. The minute you start fragmenting the state, things like DeFi get much more challenging. The, the act of transacting between two different shards becomes an act of bridging. And so at that point, if you're basically having to use an internal bridge to use the network, there's a question of why am I using this network and not using a different network? And so I think that one of the biggest unknowns here is regulation. If we see an area where regulation moves to a you know, fully KYC'd permissioned DeFi ecosystem, well, that suddenly makes the idea of an application-specific sidechain much more attractive. We'll see if that happens. I think that would be a failure state for, for most people in crypto today. And so I think there's going to be uh, a lot of pushback if that seems to be the direction that this, this industry is headed, at least in the United States. Is that something being muted in DC at the moment? I mean, 
you know, you'd have to you'd have to actually chat with the politicians more, right? I would say that like the Solana Foundation is certainly members of a few different industry groups that are are making preferences and known in DC and trying to help navigate through that process. You know, I, I would say that generally our our perspective is that like reasonable and common sense regulation can be a bonus to the industry. One of the main things driving developers and founders offshore in the United States is regulatory uncertainty. That 99.99% of crypto founders want to do the right thing and they want to, they want to abide by, do things legally and they want to do things correctly. They, they want to build a company the same way any equity founder wants to build a company. They just don't know how to do it right now. If you're trying to launch a token in the United States, like half your seed round is going to lawyer fees. And that is not a system that's really tenable for the future here. That's what I'm worried about, honestly. Great. Uh, so that was Austin Federer. He's the head of strategy at the Solana Foundation. As part of our consensus programming in Austin in April, we're going to be having a deep dive into the Solana network. I think you'll be there, Austin. I don't know if you'll be presenting, but you'll definitely be there. And there'll be a lot to talk about the Solana network, obviously a key part of the blockchain ecosystem. Thanks very much for joining us. Join Coindesk's Consensus 2023, where Web3 meets IRL, happening April 26th through 28th in Austin, Texas. Consensus is the industry's only event bringing together all sides of crypto, Web3, and the metaverse. Immerse yourself in all that blockchain technology has to offer creators, builders, founders, entrepreneurs, and more. Use code CARPE to get 15% off your pass. Visit coindesk.com slash consensus or check the link in the show notes. You enter the abandoned building down the street, flashlight and sledgehammer in hand. The rats dash past you. It smells like burnt rubber. Watch out for the rusty nails. You brush some cobwebs away. Your lantern picks up a glimmering knob in the corner. You shuffle over to the open door. Take a cautious step. Then the wind picks up. It pushes you over the mantle, and you plummet down into Danny's dungeon. Welcome to Danny's dungeon, the place where I'm sulking after the Super Bowl. We'll get to the Super Bowl a little bit later in the show, but right now we're going to talk about conferences, which, you know, is kind of our forte, given our name is uh, that other conference, our own that being. But I really am interested in us having a little discussion about what we as reporters do at conferences over this past weekend. I went to the University of Pennsylvania to the Wharton School's Penn Blockchain Conference, and I heard some pretty high-valued speakers, including SEC Commissioner Hester Peirce, who, as we talk about in, the, in this episode, she's a big supporter of crypto, and she had some news breaking during that panel, which put me in a position uh, where I had to write. And so I was writing, 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 and before she was even off the stage, I was able to file a story with a picture, 30, 40 minutes. We got five paragraphs up. It felt great, but it makes me think about the larger question of how we as reporters work at conferences. So Cam, I want to start off with you. How do you carry yourself at conferences? What's your like mission? Are you rushing to get to new sources, to network, to listen to the speakers, to take pictures? What's a day in the life at a conference for you? Yeah. So I mean, you know, I haven't been at Coindesk too long, not not as long as, as both of you have been. So I'm pretty new to going to conferences and kind of getting in the groove of whether or not I'm there to cover things, whether or not I'm more on the networking side, just how I go about conferences in general. I like to start, obviously, by really vetting the speaker list and pointing out names who I think 
are one either going to announce something or will have some really important insights that could just lead to a story. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's been a while since I've been covering conferences as a reporter. Now I'm an editor, but uh, yeah, I think it's a tricky assignment going to conferences because you're there to meet people, you're there to kind of learn and be involved in the conference. But then when a breaking news thing happens, like it did with Danny this week, then you have to kind of drop all of that and, and, and do the story and you get away from doing the wrap-up grander theme stuff that you were planning to do. So that's, that's a tricky uh, thing to plus your kind of remote environment where you have to kind of uh, sit and write something uh, often crouched on a floor in a corner somewhere. So that's, that's a tricky thing. I do find myself crouched on the floor in a corner quite often at conferences. It really puts me in my place relative to the, the guests above me on stage to, for me to just be in a little corner all shriveled up. I'd love to hear some of your life hacks for conferences, especially because we're all going to be joining each other at the Consensus Festival with some of our listeners too, hopefully. I'll start off. Uh, I mean, uh, not to downplay our own uh, event, but obviously some of the best conversations happen away from conferences at conferences. So that's definitely a strategy for reporters. You know, don't concentrate on the main program. Look at uh, what's going on behind the scenes. And also, you know, reporting is a competitive business. So, um, you know, there's no point sometimes going to a press conference if there are going to be 30 other reporters there because you're going to get exactly the same story. They are. You want to have uh, a quiet chat late at night with somebody in a bar uh, when you get an exclusive. So something to think about. All right. So I am in the dungeon and there are so many cobwebs and I'm pushing through and I can't see anything. But I realize two steps ahead of me, there's a wall. And there's another wall, which means there's a corner. So we found Cam's corner. Hey, guys, how's it going? I'm amazed. This is beautiful. I mean, I had to riff off of it. Such a good intro. In Danny's dungeon, I have a corner. Well, every week we're going to find our way into the dungeon in a different way. So this room is going to have to keep expanding with more and more walls for there to be more corners. Exactly. This week, Cam's corner, we're going to be talking about the Super Bowl. Sorry in advance, Danny, I know it's a sore subject, but we're not going to be talking about the game details, although I'm pretty happy the Chiefs won. Anyways, that NFT commercial that I'm sure all of you saw when you were watching the game, this company, Limit Break, which is a Web3 gaming company, broadcasted a 30-second commercial for its Digidaiku Dragon Eggs NFT collection. So this was during the Super Bowl that Limit Break paid $6.5 million to air. 6.5 6.5 million. 6.5 million. Yeah. Which, Jesus. to be honest, I'm not super aware of the market for Super Bowl commercials. I mean, that definitely seems like a lot, considering it very much as crypto winter. But they paid this money to air for about half of their commercial a QR code, which allowed viewers to immediately scan it and mint one of their Dragon Egg NFTs for free. Now it's about 16 hours after the game ended, right? And these NFTs that people minted for free last night are being sold on the secondary market. So on OpenSea, they are retailing for about 0.3 ETH, which is around $450. So it's really interesting just in that time how the demand is completely shot up. Um, Ben, I don't know if you were watching the game, but did you guys see this ad? What did you think? Did you scan it? I'm really curious. I missed the game last night and Danny maybe is well placed to talk about that even though it's a sore subject. But uh, it is interesting how many ads these days are featuring QR codes, and it seems like crypto companies are 
leading away with that and kind of you know going from one environment to another environment to mint something uh it seems to definitely be a trend uh going forward well i think the media really bamboozled itself we had so many stupid stories about how there were no uh gonna be no crypto commercials no crypto commercials no crypto commercials there was a crypto commercial and then again there wasn't a crypto commercial last year we had we saw five or six very crypto specific commercials at the super bowl this year we had one commercial that had a crypto element that marketed itself as a digital collectible. And so you would have realized if you got through to the Mint page what, that it was a crypto thing. And people who are in the industry would, will probably realize just by hearing the word digital collectible that it's probably some NFT something. But we've come in one year so far that companies can no longer feel empowered in marketing their things as crypto things. It's like a naughty word. You can't do it. And if you do do it, then you risk wasting your $6.5 billion. So my how far we've come in a year and not in a good way for the crypto industry. I think that's a very interesting point. I definitely wanted to bring up the fact that this year, no crypto ads were planned to be aired. And then there was this NFT ad, which branded itself as a digital collectible. And this is a trend that we're seeing a lot in the space. I'm curious. I know, Danny, you think it's intentional. But Ben, how intentional do you think it was to almost skirt this no crypto ad sentiment by branding these dragon eggs as digital collectibles rather than NFTs. Yeah, I definitely see uh, you know crypto going away as a kind of catch-all term for the industry and its assets. Uh, I think we're seeing that across different conferences and media coverage and the way which companies are presenting themselves now. Uh, you know, they're running away from the term and using any alternative possible. All right. That was Carpe Consensus. Thanks, Ben and Danny. And next week, we are not having a show. We will be off. But hope you enjoy the long weekend. Hope you get outside, touch some grass, and keep exploring. Leave us a review. Let us know how we're doing. Let us know if you're vibing with us. We want to hear. We want to hear about what you want us to talk about. So let's keep the good vibes going, and we will see you all in two weeks. Bye, everybody. Goodbye. Carpe Consensus is a Coindesk production, executive produced by Jared Schwartz, and produced and edited by Eleanor Paul. Have any questions or comments? Email us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line Carpe Consensus. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. <laughs>